Welcome to Deharmonizing with your hosts, Josh Harlick and Andrew Mull. Two guys sitting around and breaking down all things pop culture. To another exciting episode of Deharmonizing. As always, I'm your co-host Josh Hart. How are you doing, Star Child? I'm doing great. Is that is that my best Paul? That's my best Paul Stanley. I don't that's, know. That's not that's bad. That's not bad. So we are exploring the hottest band in the land. That's right, Kiss, one of the biggest selling rock and roll and i guess musicians groups of all time really yeah and just to quickly cover the topic of today's episode we're going to break this up into two parts the first part will be a focusing on their 70s output which josh and i affectionately refer to as classic kiss and then we're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about the second half of maybe their more productive part of their career, which is 80s Kiss, which could be referred to, I guess, maybe as Crappy Kiss. Uh, but either way, that's going to be the, uh, the the focus of this episode. So part one is going to be 70s and part two will be 80s. So this right now, we're going to get into part one. And really the purpose for doing this, October is going to be a Halloween-themed month. So each week we'll, we'll be releasing some new content on something that is connected to Halloween. And so we, we both consider KISS to be a very Halloween-themed band. So, Josh? All right. So let's get underway. Exciting. Andrew, Andrew, so let me know. What, what, are, your, uh, what are your fondest, funniest, coolest memories of KISS? I'm trying to remember how I even got into Kiss because it's weird. I don't really remember. I'm trying to think. You and I kind of got into Kiss around the same time. It was. It was around the same time. And what was interesting about it was I don't know who did it, said it first, but my uncle, my uncle Paul, had uh, four albums uh, in his collection that was at my grandmother's house. So mm-hmm. I'd go over there. And I'd flip through his records, and they were all 70s Southern rock. I mean, this is Texas, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, And four of the albums were Kiss albums. It was Alive, it was Rock and Roll Over, it was Dressed to Kill, and then it was the original self-titled debut. I, I thought it was weird. You know, I was like, it looked like a, a terrible band. If somebody were to ask me which would be the four most representative Kiss albums to get from their 
their heyday or from their 70s period with the makeup, I think it would be those four albums. I think I would suggest those exact four. Maybe I would put in Destroyer instead of maybe Rock and Roll Over. I agree. And what's funny about that, and we'll go through this a little bit more in detail in a little bit, but... You know, they didn't really start selling any albums at all until Alive came out, you know. But you've got three right there that we... Well, I guess Rock and Roll Over was after. So two, Dress to Kill, and the self-titled debut, which honestly didn't really sell a whole lot of albums, you know. If you listen to those first three albums, they're good, but you don't get the real... You know, I think Kiss was one of those bands that really translated well live, and you almost had to see, or at least have the visual to really appreciate them. And you don't really get that feeling or that vibe from their first three studio albums. And it really wasn't until Alive came out that you, that, you know, they were able to translate their live show to, to tape. And I think, you, I think yeah. you get a much better sense of who they are, what they were all about from that live album. And then I think those first three albums started to go back and sell. <laughs> This was, a, I think, a big influence on me and you, especially those early years, you know, the, the years we're going to talk about, which is right up till, I guess you could smash it up to 1979, basically, and after that, they took on a different kind of style, and when you look at some of those old video recordings, you just sent me one last night, a Black Diamond, on uh, Midnight Special, and they just killed it, I mean, they're such good, they sound good, they're 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 kind of dark during this time. They're still young, and you you know you described them as skinny and poor. <laughs> and I was gonna tell you, so that first album, the the first the self titled Kiss album sold seventy five thousand copies on its initial release. That's right. And no hit single. Yet, if you, in retrospect, all the you know whether it's Rolling Stone or Spin or whatever magazine, anytime there's any kind of ranking of the most essential glam rock bands or hard rock bands especially the 70s it's always at the top i mean it's one of those albums that i think has just gotten more and more popular through the years and i'm looking at the song list real quick i mean strutter nothing to lose firehouse cold gin deuce black diamond a hundred thousand years all those songs are on that first record um the only yeah the only songs really that you would that you that like are not I would consider Kiss staples are 
Kiss and Time, and then that, and then the love theme from Kiss. But pretty much the other eight songs are Kiss classics. Yeah, huge. And whenever I want to get in the car and just drive and hear some real just rock and roll, like straight rock and roll, and I, I want it to be awesome and loud and fun, I always put on that album. It's a good one. So let's get into some of the history of Kiss. The, the Kistery. Kistery. Get it? Mm. <laughs> All right. Kiss. Well, let's start a little bit pre-Kiss, okay? So let's do, let's start with Wicked Lester. Wicked Lester, which which any Kiss fan knows, Wicked Lester was their first band formed by uh, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. They, they formed in 1972, Wicked Lester, and they recorded one album for Epic Records, and it was shelved. Cause I find it hard to tell you To tell you that I really love you And I know what's in your heart In your mind, in your body and your soul But I hear it when we whisper Peter Chris was also in Wicked Lester. That's correct. So Kiss has sold more than 100 million records in their entire career. So so from the time they formed in 1973 through current, that's crazy. They for a while there they were uncool, and I think any nobody would would disagree. So why do you think there is this stigma attached to Kiss, and why do you think they get pegged as an uncool band, or why do you think they did get pegged as an uncool band and is it one of those things where you're inevitably if you're going to get as popular as they did there's always going to be that backlash at some point where all of a sudden then it's not cool to like a certain band and is it am I maybe making a defense because I like them here like am I trying to like sugarcoat the reality I mean are they really an uncool band and we just don't admit it or you know, because every band is uncool in the 80s. I mean, the 80s were a bad time for a lot of bands. I mean... Yeah, it really was. I, I think a lot of that... They actually survived it. They, survi- they survived the 80s. They really charged ahead, and then they came back, and now they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they're just living off the legend now. And I think a yeah. lot of the, the, the down, their downfall is just overexposure. You know, they were so, I think people forget how huge they really were even in the 70s. I mean, they were all over the place. I mean, you'd open Playboy magazine, and there was an interview with Gene Simmons. You know, they were being interviewed. It's like it's like any modern musician today being interviewed in every magazine and every television show and talk show. That's what they were. They were huge, and so at some point, that was gonna fade off, especially because because Kiss. You know, they made the decision to be overexposed. I mean, they wanted it, you know, and I'm sure they would admit that. And they're ha- they're perfectly fine admitting it. And they got into some more disco sounds, you know, and then they took the makeup off. And they kept trying to reinvent themselves, and you risk your popularity when you do that. But, I mean, no one can argue with the impact. And, I mean, just, they are, I, I, I see them as a true American rock and roll band. The reason is, is because of that commercialization. 
And, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, I mean, if you want to make money, they're making money. You know, if you want to play some good rock and roll, they're playing some good rock and roll. So their know? second album was Hotter Than Hell. And their second album actually didn't even outperform the first one. It actually did worse critically and commercially than the first one. And the second album still has some good songs on it. I'm curious what songs you like off of it. There's uh, Parasite is on it. Hotter Than Hell is on it. Let Me Go Rock and Roll. Got to Choose, which is a good one. Let Me Go Rock and Roll was the only single, and it stalled at number 100. <laughs> it didn't really... It wouldn't have made our Billboard even... Hot 100 conversation? No, we wouldn't have even talked. We didn't even talk about it. Didn't even think about it. But... You're, it's a good album, and those songs that you just mentioned, those are all great songs. I think, you know, if you know the history of Kiss and we're talking about these songs versus them being on Alive, which they were, there's a reason why Alive exploded, because it just sounds awesome. You know, obviously, we all know the story. They added some audience sounds. They added some sounds to their singing, and you know, but I was never upset about that, you know? I was never upset it, about we, it either. I don't, I don't, I didn't even actually understand what the problem was. When you make an album in the studio, you record things over and over again so they sound perfect. Right. I mean, that's what you do. So I guess maybe because it's people set, seem it's like, oh, it's false, you know, because they're like, but you do that with studio albums. You make it sound perfect. So they're just releasing another album and making it sound. There's awesome. not a single I mean, live album in existence that hasn't been doctored in some way. Frampton comes alive was recorded in the studio. Kill, released March 19th, 1975. Just as a whole, the album still didn't really sell. Basically, at this point, uh, Casablanca Records are going bankrupt. You know, um, in fact, they were, because Hotter Than Hell didn't perform, they pulled the band from their tour to record Dress to Kill. They're, I think they're just trying to this last ditch effort to make some money, yeah. right? I can only imagine what that felt, feels like. I mean, sure, we know Kiss now, but at the time, what do you think the studio is thinking? Every time they put out a record from from any band from that time, I mean, they had Donna Summer on that label and a few others, but like I'm sure any time they were releasing an album from one of their stable of artists at that point, they're probably like praying that that album is going to break through or be a success, and it was just one flop after another. If you listen to the album, um, it suffers the same fate as the prior, well, prior two albums, um, in that it just uh, it, it doesn't have that energy, and then that was one of the problems with some of those studio albums at first is like they drag a lot, like they're real messy, just kind of muddy recordings. Like the recordings aren't good. Yeah, it's like they have pro the producers, um, whoever's producing it, is not getting how to bring that sound out. Which I'm sure at that time, in the early '70s, you know, that was still pretty tough 
to do. You know, you have bands like ACDC already out at this time. They're doing a much better job at it, right? To really capture, even though they're not live, they need to capture some kind of awesome rock and roll going on. Aerosmith was out at this point too, and they had Jack Douglas producing them, and they, they were, you know, sonically superior to Kiss. I agree. And then September 10th, 1975, Kiss releases Live, which, you know, explodes, really. If you haven't really delved into Kiss at all, go to a live first, turn it up real loud, and le- and and just listen and see what you I think. I think Kiss Alive was the first album I listened to. Yeah, I, I it wasn't my my first the first one because I randomly, I think, listened started listening. Alive was first for me and it was your uncle's copy. Yeah, by that time we were exploring that that collection. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't know what to think, you know, it, obviously when you listen to any band in the beginning, you have to take time to really soak it in, but you know, it's pretty quickly we thought that they were awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um Kiss Alive was recorded over four different shows ranging from May 16th through July 23rd of 1975. They took different performances from different shows and blended them together to make them feel like it was one long performance. Average attendance per night, 6,000. <laughs> May 16th, they played at Cobo Arena in Detroit. June 21st was in Cleveland. Ju- July 25th was in Davenport, and July 23rd was in um, Wildwood. So, um, which is New Jersey and um, Davenport's in Iowa. I mean, you know this uh, as well as anybody, but with any live album, you're listening not just for the best performance, but you're listening for how the levels were, how the mics worked, because sometimes there might be a great performance, but maybe the mic went, went out or got knocked over or something like that. All those kinds of things can happen that can ruin a live performance. So, that's why they recorded four different shows so they could have some options to choose from. And I'm sure they edited different um, performances together. And I'm sure that they, we've talked about this, but they went back and covered up mistakes. Paul, I, I was watching an interview with Paul Stanley one time and he was talking about that. And maybe he was making a, maybe he was making not, not an excuse, but maybe he was defending himself a little bit, but, but he said that when you, listen to a live album, you're only hearing it, but when you're watching the performance live, you're, you're, you're also listening with your eyes, and when you can only, when you can, when you can only hear it, it's just, it just it sounds different than it is when you're actually seeing it. So when you see a, a performer jumping around and you know, maybe screaming into the mic on one lyric and, then not, and not screaming into the mic on the next lyric or getting out of tune, or hitting a bad note, when you when you watch that type of thing, you kind of gloss over the mistakes more, but you can't do that on a live recording, on a live album. You have to go back and fix that, right? So, and that's why they went back and they, you know, now there are two conflicting theories. I mean, there's a, there's a wide ranging, uh, there, there are wide ranging theories on what actually was, was fixed and what, what, what was actually doctored on the live album recording some have said that they basically went back and re-recorded all the songs in the studio and basically put the live noise behind them and did that some have said well no they didn't go that far they just fixed a few bad notes and maybe fixed some lyrics that were out of tune because that's always going to happen i mean if you've ever seen paul stanley perform live you see that he's jumping around and doing cartwheels and 
and jumping off of yeah, risers. It's next to impossible. To There's be no way. And if they're gonna put out a live album, they don't want to. They don't want to make it so realistic that you're like they're terrible, because <laughs> they can't see it. Just to his point, you know, you would you would forgive a little more if you could see, but they knew they knew that you weren't gonna be as forgiving. So stop me if I'm wrong, but I, I I'm pretty sure I've heard some of the samples of the audio without being fixed. I've heard it with and without. I like it. I like it fixed. Yeah, and I'm not gonna be such a purist that I'm gonna. You know, I'm not going to whine and moan about them fixing some bass notes that were missed or bad bass notes. That's, that's it's all about the experience. We're going to do something. This is off. This is off our third album, Dressed to Kill. Something a little slow. It's something hot and heavy. It's called She. It's all about the experience and um, the the object of the producer in the band was to give you the best product they possibly could and if that means it's a little bit artificial then that's the way it goes one of the interesting things that they did say about the live album is that they had to go back and add more crowd noise it's it's really loud you know my the perfect example would be when they're about to play rock and roll all night and party. So let's rock and roll all night and party every day. And then it goes, doom, doom, sh, doom, and you can hear the audience going, like they, they probably overdubbed that. Like the audience is clapping to the song. Yeah. 
the, a live audience is all about energy, and if you're just only going to be able to listen, I think they made a good choice on that one because I was like, man, I wish I was there. That's what they want you to feel. Right. The Rock and Roll Night live version performed a lot better on the charts. Yeah, the live version, right. That's the one that everybody knows. Apart from it being live, do you know the other big difference between the live version and the studio version? There was a solo on the live version. I don't know. I wonder why that that version didn't have a, a solo on it. But um, I think just just to, to our point, you know, something about in the production, like they they just weren't able to, like they weren't foreseeing what yeah. needed to be recorded. And then once you get to a live, yeah. they never captured that on the albums. That's it makes sense that it would finally work for them. It's more of a failing of I guess the the record label and the producer I think so. that not being able to get because. I think if you saw them live, you would say this band, I think your immediate reaction was this band has a terrible producer. They sounded real messy and muddy and murky. Everything's contained. Like the drums have like barely any uh, reverb on them. And Hotter Than Hell, the recorded version is terrible compared when you compare it, when you compare it to the live version, it sounds, it's like, it's, it sounds like they, like they slowed the record down. Yeah, and it sounds like they like the guitars are out of sync with the drums, and like the drums are dragging. Like you know, did he not have a click track or something, or or the vocals are I don't know all over each other. It's a real messy, sloppy sounding version. But then you hear the live version, yeah, and it's like a tight punk song almost. You That's know? a song I heard the live version first. Yeah. And I really liked that song. I remember listening to that one in particular over and over again because I really liked it. It was like, Dana, Dana. And, and Paul Stanley says that he really liked uh, Freeze All Right Now. Yeah. And it totally sounds like that in the beginning, but it kind of goes off into another zone. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's actually pretty close to All Right Now if you really listen to both songs. But How disappointed listen- were you? Yeah. How disappointed were you when you heard the studio version? I was like, oh, like it's, it's, it, it just was my, my first example I, where I was really aware of the live, their live stuff versus their studio stuff. I mean, the hotter than hell in the studio is like, she looked good, she looked hotter than September 10th, 1975, and explodes, right? Now they are headliners. Now they are in every magazine, and Casablanca Records is no longer bankrupt. Um, and from there on out, I mean, we can, we can you know, certainly continue to go through the albums. We've got uh, Destroyer, released March 15th, 1976. Destroyer is my, that's my favorite. Yeah, Destroyer is, is an awesome album. That was the first album I owned from Kiss, 
and it was a pretty good one to start with. I mean, from start to finish, it's really good. It's a real tight album. There's only nine songs on it. It's produced by Bob Ezrin. So, and you hear immediately the difference that a producer makes. I mean, Detroit Rock City, uh, King of the Nighttime World, God of Thunder, uh, um, written by Paul Stanley. Shout It Out Loud hit number one in the Canadian singles chart. Beth hit number five. You know, I say hits using air quotes, but I mean, I think Beth, of course, was the B-side. The A-side was Detroit Rock City, and they released it with Beth on the B-side, and DJs, of course, had, had a lot more flexibility back in those days to, you know, to play what they wanted, and so they started playing Beth on the B-side. Uh, they started playing the B-side, and so they re-released it with Beth as the A-side, and then it went to number seven. Uh, something about that, too. Destroyer actually fell off the charts, and then it came back onto the charts once Beth, this, the DJ started playing Beth. So, interesting fact. Well, what's funny, I guess, is well, I guess when you think about it, like, so Kiss is now known for a ballad. This, I guess, was maybe the first time they would quote unquote sell out by a hard rock band throwing throwing Beth out there as the A side. I, I can understand if they left it as the B side and didn't really, you know, create, I mean, putting it on the album is one thing and leaving it as a B side is one thing. But when you, when you turn it into the A side and kind of build a campaign around a ballad, then you, you're going to take some shots, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. This is the first time where we see Kiss as a business and not just uh, an idealistic rock and roll band, you know? Which is nothing. Wrong Every band with is that. a business. Yeah, that's where they get the whole point of being the whole point of being a band is to make money. I mean, I mean, well, some people argue against that. You know how it is. It's like there's people who are purists and they're like, you know, you know, Kiss never presumed to be anything other than a rock and roll band that is also a business. Which I, which is, which is, which they embraced it and they, which I, I think in a way is admirable. Like. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley were never going to sit down in an interview with you and say anything other than, yeah, I mean, our goal was to make a lot of, as much money as we possibly could. Isn't that the point? Um, and I agree with, with what you're saying. Is it the, is it the real point? Yes or no. I mean, I think any bands are, you know, I think if you're going to get into the music business, it's, it is a business and your goal is to sell records and you want to, and it sure would be nice to make money while you're playing rock and roll. I mean, come on. Or it's, being or being awesome. 100% idealistic. But, you know, that's not that's not the yeah. real world in a lot of cases. Um, the right. Beatles were as, as big a business as you ever, as you could possibly get. In fact, I read an interview with Lennon where he said, you know, Paul and I would consciously say to each other, okay, let's ride ourselves a swimming pool and let's ride ourselves a new mansion and let's ride ourselves a new car. You really lie, my
Rock and Roll Over, released November 11, 1976. So we have two albums now released in 76. So the momentum is already there for Kiss. It, at this point in the 70s, uh, the next few albums are going to be million sellers, starting with Rock and Roll Over. By the way, are you constantly amazed at how prolific you had to be in the 70s? I mean, they, they, they've released, by this point, they've now released five albums in three years, including, not including the live album, six albums. Six total albums in a little over three years. And they're years. touring nonstop in the middle of all this. Bands now are so yeah, lazy. Well, I, it might just be the way things are structured now. Like it's, you know, it, it was so formulaic at the time. You know, we, we've we've covered the way things have changed in the music industry. Um, and it was much simpler, you know. And, and I, I, miss the, I miss that format. You know, you basically played live and tried to sell records. You'd sell a physical record, you know, and and if you didn't sell, you're like, oh, crap, keep playing and then sell another one, you know, like put it out. And that's all you did now because there's so much competition and there's so many different ways to hear, you know, you basically try to get exposed via the Internet. Right. And and then you do you do still make most of your money playing live, you know, but uh, unless unless you can. But yeah, it, it's changed. You know, yeah. I mean, obviously, bands and whoever play still work they work really hard but i definitely think it's changed i mean yeah you're right look i'm look how hard they had to work just to make it and then once they made it now they're on a machine they can't stop hidden secret to rock and roll bands especially around this time is that the, the albums that's not where they were making their money they were making their money that's on right. t-shirts and royalties concert, for albums were tickets. very slim we're talking pennies pennies yeah you made your you made your money yep. at your shows and merchandise which we'll get into that too. In merchandise. Rock and Roll Over is a really good album. We were talking about it at the very beginning. It was one of the ones that your uncle had. The Some of the standouts, in my opinion, Calling Dr. Love, Hard Luck Woman. Uh, Garth Brooks covered that. Have you ever heard that version? Of course, yeah. Um, we haven't really talked about how derivative Kiss could be. and you, you kind of alluded to it when you were talking about Hotter Than Hell. But Hard Luck Woman... Is almost an exact ripoff of Maggie May by Rod Stewart. If never I met you, I'd never have seen you cry. If not for a first hello, we never have to say goodbye. If never I held you, my feelings would never show. I start walking, but there's so much you'll never know. I keep telling you, hard luck woman. You ain't a hard luck woman. Wake up, Maggie. I think I got something to say. September and I really should be back at school I know I keep you amused but I feel I'm being used oh Maggie I couldn't have tried anymore you led me away from home just to save you from being alone you stole my 
Hard Luck Woman was written by Paul Stanley. And we haven't really talked about the Simmons-Stanley songwriting partnership. And I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time on it, but if you go back and look at their... Paul Stanley is kind of has the edge with most songs written. He um, Simmons had a few, um, but I think most of the more well-known songs are usually written by Paul Stanley. Um, but on this album, it's, it's, it's a little bit more split 50-50. Paul Stanley wrote, I Want You and Hard Luck Woman, but Simmons wrote uh, Calling Dr. Love, Ladies Room, and Love Him and Leave Him and See You in Your Dreams. So more it's a little bit more balanced than this one. But if you go back and sort of, which of course you and I love to do that. Like that's one of the things that I think reason, one of the reasons why we get along so well is that you and I both have that same kind of obsession with liner notes, with like songwriting credits and, and, and the personnel and all that kind of stuff. We love kind of pouring over that kind of stuff on, on albums. Yeah, I mean, they're the core of this band. I mean, they I think they really believed in this idea from day one as those sort of like not sort of a songwriting duo, but mainly just a a business partnership, you know, like they believe in kiss and they keep kiss going that shows. And not only who like the balance of the songwriting, but just the, how they've remained together throughout many years, you know? Yeah. I think, I think they consciously wanted to be a, a Lennon McCartney type partnership. It doesn't really translate that. Like most of their songs are written by one person. They don't carry that same sort of, Stanley Simmons moniker. I mean, there it's, are. It's not Lennon McCartney or right, know, right. Sim, Stanley Simmons or whatever. No, it's it's, it's, not it's it, no, it's. I mean, there are some songs that are written by both of them, and like they'll credit both of them. I think Rock and Roll Night was one of them. I think we would be remiss though if we didn't talk about Ace Frehley's songwriting. I mean, it's, by by this point, by their fifth studio album, his songwriting has completely dropped off. He's not. He doesn't have a single song that is on this album that he wrote. He's still a part of the band at this point, but none of the songs are credited to him but some of their most well-known would from their first three or four albums are ace fraley songs um cold gin um parasite he wrote uh, flaming youth the band has a mystique and all four members provide something in that in that realm right um, yeah oh yeah ace Frehley was a damn good guitarist um and his solos were pretty influential to me i was i, I was <coughs> Are you, are you gonna stop coughing or? I'm dying. Are you trying to ruin the podcast? Like I don't understand. <laughs> okay, I'm okay. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> Ace Frehley and Peter Chris—they brought their own mystique to the band, you know, and certainly served that time period, I guess. Right. Um, Ace Frehley was the coolest, and he was the coolest one. He was the coolest one. I mean, you, Gene Simmons. I think most people would argue that he's the coolest one, but if you're if you're really into picking apart music, then I think a lot of people who really love Kiss really thought that of Ace Freely.
Whereas Gene Simmons was all about the character and the image and all that kind of stuff. I think Ace Frehley was just, I'm going to go out there and play guitar, and I'm going to play a badass guitar. And Which, by the way, before we forget, um, there's a real... There's a real funny clip of Gene Simmons, I guess in the last couple of years. He's on the ground or something playing his bass, and then he falls over real slow. It's like real funny because he's older, you know, obviously. He's an easy target, but uh, maybe we should put that on our website if, you, if we can remember uh, that. I haven't seen that. I did see, I did see like last night while I was falling down all kinds of Kiss YouTube rabbit holes, and I found this recent video of Ace and Gene Simmons playing together. Have you seen it? It's no. like... Um, it was like a benefit or something, and uh, I think it was like uh, I think Gene Simmons is touring as as Gene Simmons right now, or at least he was a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And I guess he, and I guess Ace Frehley was like was would just happened to be there, or was maybe a guest at a, at a couple shows. And so Ace came out and did um, Parasite and uh, Cold Gin with Gene. It was really cool. Hmm, that is cool. Yeah, I'll have to look yeah. that up. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of good to see. Like you always kind of want them to all get along and it kills the illusion i guess a little bit when you find out later that this band that you really liked really secretly hated each other and yeah. which is would. so such a common story with bands i don't know what yeah. it is but man like yeah and it's like I, I understand like you're with somebody 300 days out of the year oh yeah non-stop like you're gonna things are gonna get to you and like every little thing will set you off mm-hmm I just want to go through quickly a couple of uh, Kiss albums, Love Gun, which I love the song Love Gun. It was released June 30th, 1977. I really like the song Love Gun. I mean, it's so blatantly sexual. And it's it's almost comical. But the song itself... You know, you put that on if you want to hear some rock and roll and the drama stars. How how much did Spinal Tap nail this genre? Like, is there anything more like it's such a cheesy song? There's no subtlety at all by this point. Yeah. Uh, What are some of the other tracks on Love Gun? Um, It's actually an interesting album. Uh, Christine 16 is on there, which I think is a. Pretty that's, cool. That's a good song. Pretty cool riff to that song. Shock mm-hmm. Me, which is another Ace song. Shock Me. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of a cool, kind of a cool little. It's weird. I think it's kind of weird, but it, it's it's cool. and all not a bad album it's okay maybe their last really good one actually yeah i would say especially if we're talking about the makeup years i mean we're we're this this (laughs) this period's winding down andrew (laughs) 